0: Father, we particularly commit ourselves to you this morning in light of the the, the seriousness of the things we study. Would you prepare our hearts, prepare our attitudes, and cause us to be moldable, malleable in your hands, God, ready for whatever comes to hand in these years ahead. God, we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're doing a series called Living as an End Times Believer and when you start to study end times really there are four principal parts to it the return of christ judgment heaven and hell and that's about it and everything that you come across is really wrapped up in those things we've spent the first several weeks four or five weeks is it just looking at the return of christ and how you know blatantly obvious it is that that Jesus's second coming is very very near to us i mean he he wasn't unclear Christ was very, very gracious to us, telling us the signs to look for, that the gospel would have gone out all around the world, and it has, that the Jews would have a softening in their heart, and they have. There's a greater softening in the Jews today than ever, in the generation in which you live, in which I live. He told us that the Antichrist would arise within Europe. Well, in my opinion, within Europe, that the Antichrist would certainly arise. And over the last few weeks, I've put it to you, my opinion, And yours may differ, that's absolutely fine. But I think you'll find around the world that there's beginning to become a little bit of a consensus in terms of these things. As I mentioned in the first part, the confusion is beginning to clear. The fog is lifting. The biblical word mystery doesn't mean mystery. It means that which is progressively revealed over time and how it's fulfilled in this. Truly, it is fulfilled in this. So the things we used to guess at, we're not really guessing at anymore. They're very obvious, very evident. Remember in the second week, was it, we talked about Mystery Babylon. Remember that? And the forms that it had. It had a political form and a religious form. Look at Revelation chapter 17, and I'll give you some scriptural justification for some of the things we've said. Verse 1. One of the seven angels who had seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. You see that? See that woman? It's very significant, and you'll find that again and again in the book of Revelation. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. And here it is. Mystery Babylon. The Great, the Mother of the prostitutes and the abominations of the earth." So we mentioned that Babylon, mystery Babylon, is not really a mystery. It's something that is being revealed. It, it, In my opinion, political Babylon will arise within Europe in the form of probably the European Union growing in strength right as you watch your news. Religious Babylon will also be a religious system, I believe, based in the city of Rome. So religious Babylon will have as its leader the false prophet. I'll say it again. Religious Babylon, a religious system based in Rome, will have as as its leader the false prophet. Political Babylon will have as its leader the Antichrist. Now these will befriend one another and the the the, the false prophet with his religious influence will gain access to the holy place into the Jewish community for the Antichrist, paved the way it would seem and then halfway through the tribulation turns and devours that religious system, destroys that religious system. But I want to give you a little bit of, of background just briefly as we begin this morning. So this is a painting that done by a 16th century artist called Bruegel and it's a painting of how he saw Babel, the Tower of Babel, from which we get Babylon, from which we get Mystery Babylon. And if you remember at the beginning, or at the second message, we saw how Mystery Babylon is an old enemy. It began in the book of Genesis. It chased Peter and Paul across and and took its root in Rome. And it's there to this very day. And when Christ returns, He's told you His enemy. It is Mystery Babylon. The same thing that has always been there from the beginning. It came from Babel, which God knocked down that Tower of Babel. So Bruegel, knowing how they built in those days, like the pyramids and everything, they used to have to go round in circles and build their way up. And this is probably the world's most famous painting of the Tower of Babel as they perceived it to be. Now, when the political powers in Europe began to come together not long ago, just a couple of decades ago, they needed a couple of centers in Europe. But when they were designing the building that was to be the headquarters for the political powers in Europe, guess what they based the design upon? Yes. They based, this is Mystery Babylon, the political arm. And they built that building. You can go and see it. It's actually, sorry, it's in Strasbourg. Sorry, I've lost my, it's gone. Sorry. <laughs> the, I did have it. <laughs> it looks just like that. And you, you mean, you can go on the net. It's a very good site, actually, thewatcher.com. And you can follow end time stuff right there. And you will see that in Strasbourg, they have built a building that follows that very, very sign. But further than that, they continued and they've built also other structures, not just that one, but they've built a second building in Brussels, which you will hear about all the time. You hear about our MPs toddling off to Brussels. And outside that building in Brussels, this is what you will see. A woman on a beast. Now, I mean, Friends, it's kind of scary, isn't it? <laughs> the very thing that we read about political Babylon—they have built outside the entry of the political system for the European Union there in Brussels. A woman on a beast. Now, the woman represents the religious system led by the false prophet. The beast represents the Antichrist, led to, uh, the, the Antichrist, right, leading the political system. Okay, so you begin to see that Europe definitely does have a focus, and it's not just. Hocus-pocus, but it's very real. And if you start to investigate at, at, you know, to any depth, you will soon see that Europe comes in at number one in terms of where the Antichrist will have his power base. But it doesn't stop here. It continues on and on and on. You know, when Jesus came to earth, he took on a physical body. It was part of the way he humbled himself. And a physical body limits you to a geographical location. When you've got a body, that's it, you're confined to one place. That's why he was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, because once he had a body, he was confined to that place. And we know where Jesus lived. Where does Satan live? Satan's a being, a fallen angel, a spirit being. And he goes to and fro in in, in the earth, it says in Job chapter 1. But where does he live? We know where Jesus lived. Well, where does Satan live? Well, it tells us in Revelation chapter 2. If you look at it, it tells us where he lived in the days of Jesus. You can see it right here. In fact, Jesus himself tells us where Satan lived in his day. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And Jesus actually told us that in the days whilst he was on earth, Satan hung around in this place here. It was Pergamos. And in Pergamos, there was a great big, like a seat, you know, like a chair with great big arms. And they called it the seat of Satan. And in this place, Christians would be dragged and brought and they would be sacrificed at the foot of those steps. Hundreds and indeed tens of thousands of Christians were slaughtered here at inverted commas Satan's feet. So we know that in the time of Christ, Jesus, born in Bethlehem and lived in Nazareth, but Satan going to and fro in the earth made his headquarters the seat of Satan in Pergamos. Now, my point is, where does he live today? <laughs> where is this today? It's in Europe. It originally, was in Asia Minor. But in 1902, they deconstructed it brick by brick, stone by stone. And they moved it into Berlin. So in Europe, you begin to see the story, don't you? We have the rebuilding of Babylon, mystery Babylon, just like you were told. We have the woman and the beast from Revelation chapter 17. We have Satan's seat, the place where he dwelt in the times of Christ, moved into Berlin, moved into Central Europe. And it doesn't stop there. It goes on and on. They even moved the gates of hell. These were called the gates of hell. Babylon was largely destroyed over time. But parts of the gates remained. And the gates into Babylon were always referred to as the gates of hell itself. Now these used to be in Iraq. These used to be in Babylon. Where are they now? (laughs) Europe. Same thing. They deconstructed those gates and they moved them into Germany. So you begin to see that this reconstruction of Mystery Babylon is a very practical, very real, very common, current thing. So I, w- I, w- I just want you to see that in case you think we're pulling ideas out of the air. I would never do that. I hate sensationalism and I wouldn't tell you anything that I hadn't you know, intensely researched. So I believe the Antichrist will be European based. Okay. Today we're going to move on. So end times, concerns, Um, the return of Christ, judgment, heaven, and hell. And today I want to move on to those last three and start to look at them. And in some ways, you need to look at them together. Judgment, heaven, and hell. It's hard to look at any one of them on their own. There are two appointments that anyone, all all of us and all of you watching, there's two appointments that you will never be able to get away from. (laughs) One is the day of your death. And the other one is the day of your judgment when you'll stand before Christ. And there were days, I hope, when people actually fear death. But you'll notice in our societies, people don't fear death much anymore. They make a bit of a joke of it, a bit of a laugh about it. And do you know why? Because they don't believe in the second appointment. That's why they don't fear death. Because they don't actually believe there is a judgment. And that's why it's become a joke. Now, we're going to look at judgment as well as death today and what happens to us when we die, where we go, and all that. But when we die, believe me, we will face justice. And ironically, lost and saved in this world will all face justice or judgment of some sort. It just depends whether you've given that to Christ or you're going to bear your own guilt yourself. But the lost do cry for justice. It's an irony. You give a child a piece of cake and give another child a smaller piece, and what will he say? It's not fair. Justice. Justice. Without being taught, without being told, the human race almost has a, a built-in, you know, knowledge that something is right and something is wrong. We call it our conscience. So you see, we, we're made in the image of God. And we will face a, a judgment, and I'll go into detail about what that means. But I've never had such a reaction, actually, in, in modern days, against judgment, even from believers. And I tell you, friends, we will be judged. You will be judged. Lost and saved, we will face Christ. And I tell you, based on these three principles right here, why will we be judged? Well, number one, because of the injustices that have happened on this earth. You think back over the years. Think of the wars. Think of the crimes. Think of the people who have, who have committed crimes and never been caught. Maybe somebody's done something wrong to you. And they were never done for it, never caught for it. Think of the injustices of life. Well, ultimately, who made the earth? God. So ultimately, who's responsible for the whole show? Ultimately, God. And you see, there has been injustices. God never denied that. But what we fail to see is that the day in which they're brought to judgment has not happened yet. So there will be a judgment day because of the great injustices of life. Secondly, there will be a day of judgment because God in himself, he's a moral being, you see. So God in himself demands a day of, ju- of judgment and justice, and it will happen. And thirdly, there will be a day of judgment because judgment must not only be done, but it must be seen to be done. And that's even the very basis of our society. I don't know if you've been to court, especially the high court, but I go you know, to represent people now and again. And you go in there and you're sitting and there's always this little man sitting on a bench over on the side. Who is he? It's the press bench. Because justice is not only done, justice must be seen to be done. And as I say, you'll find that the lost don't have too much of a problem with a cry for justice. The human race is born with a cry for justice, but the problem is this, they say justice is for everybody else except them. Judge them, judge them all, lock them up. Who, me? No, not me. It never applies to the individual making the statement, does it? And that's because our society and our upbringing can so easily, you know, tempt us to let ourselves off the hook. And the sciences are particularly strong on this, you, you know, biology, you know. It's all in your genes. It was your dad. He was an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic, and on and on it goes. Your dad had a bad temper. And that's where you got your bad terrors. All in your genes. You're a victim, actually. Not a sinner at all. Familiar? And the science of biology can really push you. Don't go there. It's not true. It's not biblical. Or psychology and sociology. They will say you're not a, a sinner, you know. You're a victim. Look at your social background. It was the way you were raised, the way you were brought up. And try to get you to let yourself off the hook. Well, just don't fall for it. Anyway, it's not true. There's many a person who has been born in a very low place who has risen to be a king. And many born of high estate who has fallen very low. So it doesn't, don't take those roots. And they are common, even more common today, I would say, than ever. What is Judgment Day? What actually is it? You know what it is? Judgment Day... Is the day when God's anger becomes known. You see, God is angry now. God is angry this morning. He's angry right now, friends. It's just sometimes hard to see it. There's two types of anger, right? There's the fast, sudden anger, like an eruption, you know. And there's the slow, simmering, seething type of anger. Which have you got? <laughs> which would you describe? Your, which would you describe God as? Fast or slow? He's both. God is very much both. He is slow to anger, absolutely. But when He does judge, He's fast to judge. Someone once described the anger of God. I thought it was the best description I've ever heard. The, the, The judgment and the anger of God is like boiling milk. You know what milk is like? You put it on the stove and it starts to simmer and nothing's happening. But plenty's happening. And you take your eye off that milk for one second, what happens? Boom! Right? It's slow, but it's not slow, is it? It's very quick. And Romans chapter 1 and 2 warn us that you can start to see that the milk is coming to boiling point when judgment starts to be seen in the earth in the things that God does. Homosexuality, when it becomes prevalent within our societies, that is called the judgment of God, friends. That's what it is. We think it's just part of the trend. No. When God's anger burns against a nation, He hands them over. He gives them over to debauchery. It's part of your warning. When you see the gay communities rising up in power, it's a warning. A prophetic warning. That the milk is starting to boil. That the end is near. Because God is giving over parts, cities, sections of cities into debauchery. It's part of judgment. It's a warning. And even yesterday, an organization, I won't call it a church because it doesn't deserve that title, an organization in this nation of Scotland approved a homosexual minister in a pulpit. It's judgment. It's judgment. And the end is most certainly near. Don't be fooled, but watch the signs. Just another sign. So who will judge us? Who is going to judge you? You need to know that. Well it's not going to be God in the general sense of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. It's going to be Jesus. Specifically Jesus. Scripture is very clear. Judgment has been entrusted to the Son, given to the Son, and He will judge you. What will He judge? Well He's going to judge your actions done whilst in the body. He's going to judge the words that came out of your mouth. Everything that you said. And he's going to judge your secrets. The secrets of man's heart will be judged. In fact, Jesus put it like this. He said, that which was whispered in the private place will be shouted from the rooftop. I had uh, in one church, I was leading a, the meeting ended. It was Sunday morning, you know, and you get a buzz at the end of the meeting. And everybody's talking and stuff like that. And I was up at the front. And this guy, he was a bit of a creep, got one of our leaders, pulled him aside and said, hey, I'm having a private meeting for some of the leaders in the church. Don't tell Pastor Mike. I think we can go this direction, not that direction. So you come to my house, you know? And my friend at the back, with all the noise, he said, quiet, everybody quiet. Pastor Mike. John here wants to know if I'll go to a secret meeting in his house. What do I do? I thought, Morgan, I had to save that guy from a lynch mob, you know. There is nothing that is done in secret or said in secret that will remain there. But Christ said it will be as shouted from the rooftops. Now, what will the verdict be? So here you are, you die or we get raptured. Hopefully not too soon, Pastor Elia. You die, we get raptured. And we come before Christ. What is the verdict going to be? What's the verdict going to be? Here I am. I walk in. Well, guess what, friends? There's only one verdict for the human race. There's only one verdict for any human being who stands before Jesus. And that, that verdict is guilty. No, not one. We are all guilty. We have all fallen short. There is no one who I've heard, I'm sure you have too. People talk about appearing before Christ and how they will be declared innocent. <laughs> you will not be declared innocent because you're not innocent, you're guilty, friend. The whole human race is guilty. And it's an interesting question. You see, the outcomes from judgment are what? Is anyone innocent? No. Isaiah says, No, not one. Who's guilty? Everybody is guilty. The whole world appears before him guilty. However, some are acquitted. Acquitted is when someone is let off from a a crime or a sin or whatever, but they're not declared innocent. Someone else takes their place or whatever. That's what happened in our case, obviously. It's not that we are innocent. It's for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. They have the right to go free, to be set free on that day. But your guilt will probably never be so clear to you as it will be then. And never in your life or my life will I ever have been so aware that I am a sinner, as when I stand before Christ and, and receive His mercy. People hate this, you know what? I'm talking about believers. You can get you know, ridiculous reactions. In fact, when I said that once before, one person left this church, <laughs> one I'll just tell you the truth guy turns up at my door, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday. You're, you're teaching heresy. All my sins are forgiven. I'm not guilty. All my sins are forgiven. They're in the sea of forgetfulness. I said, oh, hang on a minute. Calm down, calm down. Um, what's your problem, you know? All my, I'm not saying your sins are not forgiven. But, and as the guy began to talk to me, I had to work some things out of his system. You know, I said, okay, let's just begin with with your case. Your sins are in the sea of forgetfulness, are they? Have you heard that? He said, show me that then, please. It's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. It's a pop song. I'm serious. I'm not joking. I'm not joking. It was written in 1974 by a band called Seven Day Jesus. He's put my sin in the sea of forgetfulness. And everybody's walking around singing it. And next thing they think it's scripture. Next thing I've got a Christian here who thinks he's got no judgment. He's off in his mind. He's received. It. I said, it's not in your Bible for a start. All right? So let's just get back to scripture. Another thing he was annoyed about is because they said he would give an answer for everything he did. For every deed and word in the body. And he, you know, he said, me, you said that I would be held accountable for everything that I did and everything that I said. No, I didn't. Paul did. The <laughs> Paul did. And it was like, uh, 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 I said, hang on. You're basing your theology on your grandmom and what she taught you. Get back to the Bible. Don't base it on pop music. Come on. He was furious so much so he couldn't take it and he left this church. And here he is. He's a man walking around. What's he thinking? He's thinking he's got no judgment. He's thinking it's all over. I'm done and dusted. Now, if you walk around on earth with that attitude, (laughs) what sort of Christian are you going to be? Certainly not one of these men anyway in the Bible because that was never their attitude. They feared what was up ahead with a holy fear and a healthy fear. And I never got that guy back. Well, there you go. Win some, you lose some. Didn't want to know. Won't be taught. Just believe and hold on to the first thing you believe. Even if it's wrong, And this is what you get, you see, somebody hears something, they believe it, it's the first thing they believe and so they hold it till death do them part. Even if it's taking them down into the depths, they will not let it go. You can't be like that, you see. There's two destinations for the human race, heaven and hell, two. And we've become pretty much experts in the days in which we live with the natural world because of the Discovery Channel and National Geographic or whatever but we need to know a little bit about the spiritual world. And we need to be informed so that we can help others, but also for our own security. And let me just take a moment to explain to you about your future, about the future of the saved and the future of the lost, because they're two very different ends. Human beings, we have three phases, you know. We have three different, very distinct phases of life. Here I am, I am an embodied spirit. I have a spirit within me, and it's clothed in a body. One day I'll die. My body, phase two, my body will go into the ground, and my spirit will go to paradise, not heaven, to be with the Lord. And there I will stay. My spirit will stay until phase three, which is the rapture, when we all get our new bodies, and our spirits are reclothed, this time in eternal body. Now that's the three steps for a believer. But an unbeliever, three different steps. They are also an embodied spirit, a spirit with a body. They die. Their body goes into the ground. But their spirit goes to what Peter terms remand. Their spirit goes to what he also calls in another place gloomy dungeons or you know it, it, it really is remand. It's a bit like our own judicial system. If someone commits a crime in this country, you don't go to prison you go to jail it's a different thing you go to jail which is a temporary dwelling and you wait there for what judgment judgment you go to jail you wait for your judgment and then you will either be acquitted <laughs> innocent or guilty right and so if you're lost and you die these are the that you will be held on remand to face judgment because we must all face judgment lost and saved it's, you know, it's, it gives me great security to know what the Bible says about these things. It really does. The Apostle Paul said, I know a man who was taken up into the third heaven. And this was something in the Eastern mindset that we don't particularly have, but you need to get it. They understood the, 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 the superstructure as the first, second, and third heaven. The third heaven being where God lives. And Apostle Paul, you can read all about it. He says, I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, he was talking about the phases, was taken up into the third heaven, and there saw things that he was not permitted to tell. So the third heaven is the place where God dwells. It's where paradise is, even to the, you know today. The second heaven is the stratosphere, and of that I am convinced, because I've had personal experience of that realm. The second realm is where the angels fight, and the angels war. The prince of the power of the air. That which is above the earth. That's the second heaven. That's where the angels war over this earth. And then there's the first heaven, which is the earth in which you and I live. It's called a type of heaven. Now, you follow the sequence then. When a believer dies on the earth, their body goes into the ground. Their spirit goes to paradise to be with the Lord. There they wait until the rapture, where they meet the Lord in the air, be the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then we will return to earth with Christ at some point. Okay? Abraham's bosom was for Old Testament saints, Old Testament believers, because Christ had not yet risen, neither could anybody else, neither could their spirit. So those Old Testament saints, the Bible explains it, they were held in a place called Abraham's bosom until Christ rose, and then he took them to be with him. Now, that's the saved when they die. What about the lost? Well, when a lost person dies, same principle. Their body goes into the ground, but their spirit goes on remand. And there they will be held. In fact, you know, often when you're preaching on the street, people will shout up at you and laugh at you. Ho, 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 you know? I'm going to die and go to hell and be with all my mates. You know? And if they would only let you answer the question... Actually, you're not going to die and go to hell. You're going to die and you're going to go on remand <laughs> for at least a thousand years. It's not that easy. It's not that simple and it's not that quick. You're going to be on remand in that place for at least a thousand years because there's a whole millennium to come yet where Christ is ruling and reigning on the earth. And uh, it's not that easy either because the, there, there's worse news to come. <laughs> you die. You're held on remand, a thousand years at least go by, and guess what's going to happen then? You're going to be resurrected, lost and saved. Everyone will be resurrected. Every human being who ever lived will be raised from the dead. Every human being who has ever lived will receive an immortal body, a body that cannot die. So you see, that lost person laughs and says, I'll die and go to hell. No, hang on. Let me just explain what the Bible actually says. You will die, your body will go to the ground. Your spirit, if you died today, would go in on remand and you will have to wait there for, in a conscious state for at least a thousand years until the millennium is over. And then the book of Revelation tells us this place is emptied and they appear before Christ in a brand new body that cannot die. I don't know of anything worse. Wouldn't you rather be dead, if you know what I mean, the way we think of it, You're actually going to come to full life in an everlasting body, face Jesus, and then you're going actually to the final hell. So it is not that simple. Do you know the Scriptures never say, never talk about someone going to hell. You know that? There's only one term that Jesus ever used. What was it? Thrown into hell. When I was a kid, when I was a child, I, 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 I was very happy at home. I didn't want to go to school. And I came to four or five years old. And I had to go to school for the first time. And John, who was here a few months ago, my brother John took me. And I was okay till I got to the door and I saw that big foreboding building. And that was it. I'm not going in. And I managed to get my feet jammed on either side of the door. And he could not get me. And one of the teachers came out and they sort of opened the door. And they said, go in. Whoa. Slam. And he ran off. I did not want to go in. And when the Bible talks about hell, no one saunters into hell. They don't want to go. No one wants to go to hell. But our society has made a joke of it. They laugh about it. That's part of a diffuse there, you see. Trying to take you off your guard. Trying to make you not fear the very thing that all men should fear like, you know, with with an awesome fear. That you will do everything in your power to avoid that day. To avoid being thrown into hell. Amen? You see, they make such light of it. Our world makes such, you know, they make this trite, don't they? But it isn't. No one talks more about hell than Jesus. I wish I didn't have to talk about it today. But you do. Because we need to know about it now more than ever. But when Jesus spoke about hell, he referred to it like this, remember? He said, hell is like Gehenna, where the fire never dies and the worm never dies. What's that? What is Gehenna? That's what he said hell was like. Well, this here is Gehenna. It's the Valley of Hinnom. And Jesus literally said, hell is like Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. Well, of course, we don't know what that is, but the Jews did know what it, what it was. Do you know what it was? This is a rubbish tip. And when Jesus was walking around in the city, outside the city wall was a place called Gehenna. It was the place where all the rubbish was dumped. Worse than that, it's a place if you were crucified, your body was dumped. So Gehenna was a place of a huge amount of rubbish from the whole city that would build up and build up. And every now and again, someone would come and set fire to it. And it would smolder continuously. It was a place of rotten food and rotten bodies. Where the worm never died. Where the smoke never ceased to rise. You see, I believe there was a very good reason why Jesus said, hell is like Gehenna. Not just because the worm never dies and the smoke never fails, But he wanted us to realize, and he wanted the Jews he was speaking to, to realize hell is a real place. Hell is a real state of consciousness. Now, Jesus was actually, his body was supposed to end up in here. That's the law. But you know what happened. He should have been taken off the cross and thrown into that valley right there. But he wasn't. Why? (laughs) Because Joseph of Arimathea interceded for his body and they showed him favor. But there is someone who did end up in there. We know who that is, don't we? Judas. And after Christ was raised from the dead, Judas comes along this slope right here. And he takes a rope and he throws it over a tree. And the scripture says he put it around his neck and jumped and the thing snapped. And Judas fell right down into the very place where he thought Christ would go. Hell is like Gehenna. It was a real place. I can't remember the exact statistics. But in the Bible, of the 22 times, I think it is, that hell is mentioned, only two are to unbelievers. When the Bible warns about hell, the vast majority of the warnings are to the church. You know why? Because God loves you and he warns you. This is why I, I've never believed once saved, always saved. I, I just It's just not there, friends. The warning is to us. Take a look a moment at Matthew 10. Look at this. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is talking to his disciples, his apostles. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And he goes on to teach his apostles. He's sending out these are his people. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look at Matthew 10, verse 28. Look at how he finishes this discourse where he's taught them what to do. Matthew 10, 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And here, and you can, that's just one scripture, there's a multitude of them. Again and again, we see that Jesus was very concerned that the church had a fear of hell. Right? More than anyone, as I say. And we live in an age, friends, when the preaching of hell has fallen into terrible disrepute. When was the last sermon you heard on hell? When? You probably can't even remember. And do you know why? Well, at least one of the reasons why. Because many of our ministers don't fear hell. Do you know John Wesley? Do you know why he was effective? Because Wesley feared hell for himself. Not just for them. It wasn't them and us. Wesley was like a man who had escaped from the flames, but only just. A man going to tell others, come quickly, get out of there. You look at Reinhard Bonnke today. What makes him different? Why do hundreds of thousands get saved? Because Bonnke fears hell for himself. The Apostle Paul, he called himself the chief of sinners. And when talking about entering heaven, he said, Not that I have already obtained all of this, but I press on in fear and in trembling in the hope that one day I might get there. What a difference we see in today's churches. What a difference. It's become a joke. Believer, you... God wants you to fear what? Hell! And to be aware that it's a real place. A real place. He didn't want anyone to go there. Jesus wanted no one there. If He could have avoided it, that's why He went on a cross to make a way for you, to give you that chance. If the Apostle Paul approaches the judgment seat in fear and trembling, how are you going to approach it? There's no place, I'm afraid, friends, for apathy. Absolutely none. And don't believe, you know, the, 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 cheap gof- the, the, the cheap gospel, because it will sell you short, and the day of judgment will reveal that. The Apostle Paul, again, put it very well. He said this, God forbid that I, after preaching to others, should myself perish. God forbid that I, even he, said that, right? After preaching to others that I myself should perish. No, you don't hear a lot about hell. Clever devil. Clever devil. We will all face judgment. Tonight, I can't cover this in one message. Part two is part one. Part two tonight. So please come back for that. But I don't want you to be frightened. You know what, friends? Look at me a minute. Don't be frightened of the devil. Don't be frightened of the antichrist. Don't be frightened of the false prophet. But fear and God alone. Jesus put it very well, didn't he? Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. If you have a living, active, healthy, biblical fear of your God, you have nothing else to fear. And I want you to have faith this morning that God has got a hold of you. If you have repented of your sin and put your faith in God, He's got you. Okay? So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But, n- but don't be... Um, what's the word? Don't take Him for granted either. And don't take your salvation for granted. But be as Paul. With fear and trembling, work out your salvation. I'll close with this. Do you know there was a, a Christian an, on holiday in Jerusalem recently and they're going down the street and they got lost. And they saw a shopkeeper and they went over to the shopkeeper and they said, I'm trying to find such and such a place. And the shopkeeper said, I know, I know that place. Go down the road, turn left, turn right, go round the roundabout, first on the left, first right. And the woman couldn't understand and he could see that. And do you know what he said to her? Let me lock up my shop. And he said these words, I am the way. And the woman went, I am the way. And she started to follow him to the destination. And as they were walking, she said, why did you just say, I am the way? And he said, oh, didn't you know, that's a saying here. It means that I can get you there from where we are. And we know someone else who said that too. And when Jesus says to you this morning, I am the way, it's a reassurance that he can get you there. But like no previous generation, you had better keep a hold of your Savior's hand and stay close. As we see Europe arise, as we see the gay community rise in power, you have been warned. The milk is starting to rise, and we must be on our guard. Amen. Amen. I just invite the worship team back. Let's stand to our feet. Just a moment. Hallelujah. Lord, would you help us with so many distractions in life? would you help us to keep our focus firmly on the Lord our God help us to walk in truth to live in truth Jesus just raise your hands before God a moment and just take a moment to pray to ask God to strengthen you to equip you to empower you to be the best end times believer God that you would be pleased in us that we would be ready that we would watch and heed the word of God to us. The more we commit ourselves. I pray for all those that we know who are lost. God, help us to reach them, to have a living fear of hell and to communicate that to them in a compassionate and a loving way.